0: This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com/best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, Decode DC, and The Tom Hartman Program.
1: We in the United States, and indeed in many parts of the world, this has happened too, have been engaged in discussions particularly about medical insurance. How are we going to provide our citizens with insurance so that when disease strikes, when injuries occur, that folks who are most of the time not at all responsible for why that sickness affected them, why that injury happened to them, so we can help them their suffering, their fellow citizens, it could happen to each and every one of us and probably eventually will. So this is something that is a social issue, a community issue, and so there's the instinct human beings have, a praiseworthy instinct, to take care of it collectively. It's a little like a city realizing that we all need a beautiful park. To have a picnic in, to stroll with our kids, to visit with our friends. And so the communities maintain and sustain public parks, public beaches, things that the community wants and needs and can produce for itself. And I want to talk to you about insurance, not just medical insurance, but fire insurance, injury insurance, all kinds of insurance. But let's focus on fire, injury, and disease. Okay, let's examine it. In the United States, we do not insure people. That is, we do not provide as a matter of what the community makes available to you, like a public park, like a beach, like a fire department coming to your home if, if there's a fire. We do not insure you for the loss that you suffer. If your house burns down, if you're ill for a long time and can't work, etc., etc. The society doesn't do that. That's up to you. You can buy from a private company an insurance policy that takes care of you, recoups for you your losses, compensates you for your losses, makes good what you lost from a fire, from an injury, and from getting sick right away there's a problem why because usually the people whose losses are the most painful when they get sick or have a fire and so on are the people who are the least wealthy the people who have the least can afford to lose less than those who have a lot but here comes the perversity of our system the poorer you are the less likely you are to have the money to buy insurance You need it more than rich people because they have a lot of money and if something uh, were to happen to them, they have the resources to cope. They can make up the losses they suffer out of their own resources. The people who need insurance are the poor and the middle classes for whom it is either impossible or very costly. The people who need it least who have their own resources are precisely the ones who buy the insurance because it's a cheap way to deal with risk. This is not fair, this is not just, and this is not necessary. The irony is this. If everybody paid a little bit for insurance, we can insure everybody for a little bit from everybody. A little bit from the poor, a little bit from the middle, and a little bit from the rich. And then everybody would be covered. It would be actually cheaper for the rich because the cost would be spread over everybody. Or we could make it progressive. If you're poor, you pay a little. If you're middle, you pay a little more. And if you're rich, you pay even a little more. A progressive insurance program that covered everybody. It would be more just, more humane, and it would bring the community together in a shared, nurturing, caring for one another. A little bit like the public beach or the public park. Why don't we do that? Well, let's see. There's a fancy argument that runs like this. If you insure everybody, folks won't be careful, sometimes called the moral hazard. In other words, if you, if you have an insurance for something, you won't be as careful. For example, if your house is insured for fire, this argument goes, you won't be as careful about where you strike a match, because somewhere in your brain you tell yourself, well, even if I have a fire, I've got this insurance policy. Well, I have never found this argument very persuasive, but it really has nothing to do with the topic because that problem exists when a wealthy person buys an insurance policy because that wealthy person having spent the money for an insurance policy might now be less careful, mightn't he, uh, because he has that policy so whenever you provide people with insurance there's a small degree of risk that there'll be a, a casualness, a less careful behavior because people are insured. I don't worry about it much, because I think folks have many reasons not to want to get sick, not to want to be injured, and not to want to have a fire, and to take steps to avoid it, because even if the money is given to you after the experience, the experience is awful, the experience has awful consequences, so I don't, I don't find that very persuasive, and I suspect it's one of those phony arguments whose purpose is to hold on to private insurance companies. So let's take a look at how private insurance works. Only people who can afford it, buy it. I've already talked about that. Now, let's look at what that means. A private insurance company charges what for the insurance policy you buy? Do they only charge you enough to have the money to pay you if you have a loss? No. The private insurance company is in that business to make money. So they charge you more premium, cost of the insurance, than they are going to ever pay out. Why? Because the payout, if they took all the money coming in and used it to pay all the claims, there'd be no profit. So they charge you more than it costs to meet all your legitimate claims in order to make a profit for themselves. Wow. Wow. It's not only the profits that get distributed to the shareholders of the insurance company that jack up the price. If you look at the salaries paid to the top executives of insurance companies, they're very, very high. Hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. The price of the premium you pay is the money that is used to pay their huge salaries. If the company was simply gathering your premium money to have a fund to pay you if you needed it for a fire or an injury or an illness, they wouldn't have to pay very high salaries. In other words, a public insurance program, a a government-run insurance program, might be able to take care of our needs, bring us together as a community, and charge us much less money than insurance companies are now doing. Last point, is it possible that there will be some folks who take advantage of such a system, who fake an illness, who cause a fire, who fake an injury, and so on? Of course, there are some folks who do that sort of thing, but those are criminal acts Those acts happen under the current private insurance system, too, and they would have to be in place then, as there is now, a a procedure to follow and track. If somebody makes a lot of claims, you take a look at them more closely. You have people who try to prevent that kind of abuse. But the fact that there might be that abuse is no argument against what I've been saying since we have that abuse under the current system. A different system could deliver insurance much more cheaply and effectively to the whole community than what we have now, particularly to those who can't afford insurance now for many of these things.
2: hukulak is a woman from canada who wanted to go to hawaii to vacation and she did so with her husband when she was six months pregnant now before she came to the united states she knew it would be a good idea to purchase insurance just in case anything happened with her unborn child so beforehand she did purchase insurance through blue cross and then traveled to hawaii with her husband now unfortunately while she was on her trip her water broke. According to reports, two days into her trip, Hukulak's water broke and she spent the next six weeks on bed rest in a Hawaiian hospital. Her daughter was born nine weeks early and spent two months in intensive care. Now, here's where the story takes a turn for the absolute worst. She gets a bill from the hospital and the bill is for nearly $1 million and Blue Cross refuses to pay any of it. In fact, Blue Cross did send a letter to her and in the letter to her, the company noted the following, Ms. Hukulak was diagnosed and treated for a high-risk pregnancy in the six months prior to departure. As Ms. Hukalak is currently hospitalized and being treated for high-risk pregnancy, any expenses incurred are not eligible under the terms of your policy. Now, she claims that she didn't have a high-risk pregnancy or any issues like that. She says that she had a bladder infection and that was it. In fact, she even had her primary care physician in Canada write a letter to Blue Cross but it didn't do anything to change their minds they refused to pay any of it and now this poor woman doesn't know what to do she's like do we file for bankruptcy how do we handle this this is sick
3: so what's amazing about this story is that it happens to be a Canadian that just got caught up in what is the normal procedure for us here in America a great number of us are bankrupted on a regular basis because of medical bills it's one of the it's so commonplace that, that we've almost gotten used to it. Whereas it blows the minds of people living in sane countries. They're like, wait a minute, I, I just I just had a normal problem in my pregnancy and that's what, and it's not like she risked anything. She was going to Hawaii nine months pregnant or anything, kid is born nine weeks early, etc. So it's way, way early. It's nothing she could have anticipated. She did not have a pre existing condition. It was just an infection that happened after she got the policy, right? but it doesn't matter See, that's the thing these insurance companies you might think like well okay you get insurance and then you have insurance no you don't you have insurance and then you cross your fingers and hope for the best Any sliver of an excuse they can use, legitimately or illegitimately, and they're done with you. And there, what are you going to do? You don't have the million dollars to pay the hospital. You don't have the million dollars to fight Blue Shield, Blue Cross in court. They know you don't have the money, so it's easy to just go like this, and you have no power. And here in America, it's commonplace. So what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything. You're just going to declare bankruptcy, and you're going to lose everything you have.
2: I mean, I don't you. You said it all. I don't even know what else to say about this story. I feel terrible for this woman. I mean, what is the, what's the solution? And I mean, I thought through the Affordable Care Act, people couldn't deny you for pre-existing conditions. But apparently, if you already have the insurance, they could deny certain coverage if you had a pre-existing condition, which in this case, she didn't have a pre-existing condition. She had a bladder infection, which is quite common with women who get pregnant, by the way. This and her doctor attested
3: to it. It's not our theory, right? Her doctor says that's the case so
2: i don't know what she's gonna do and that and that's the thing that scares me the most right i mean this is not an isolated incident this is a story that so many americans have dealt with with so many around so many decades right and it's you're you're never really protected you're never really covered if anything goes wrong you're screwed even if you have insurance
3: an enormous percentage of the bankruptcies in America are because of medical bills. That seems insane in any other country. And the fact that we sit there and take it is unbelievable. Obamacare has begun to address some of these issues, as Anna pointed out. Not completely, not by a long shot, and the insurance companies are still in charge. You don't have a public option, you only have private options. Mm-hmm. And then once you have a private option, then the insurance companies can screw you and you don't have much recourse, right? As this woman attested to. And even that slight change in the system, the Republicans and so many others are like, oh, you're taking freedom away. The freedom to get crushed by insurance companies and pay millions of dollars to them when anything slightly goes wrong with your pregnancy. That's the freedom that Obamacare is taking away.
2: Dude, honestly, this is going to sound really bad and really un-American, but I don't care. If I were a Canadian or if I were a European and I was looking for a nice place to vacation, I would avoid America at all costs especially if I'm pregnant there's no way in hell I would even consider it I just wouldn't I wouldn't I, I don't trust the healthcare system here I, I just don't if I were pregnant I just would avoid it and I'm not I'm not blaming her please don't misunderstand what I'm saying but if, if this is the kind of stuff that you have to deal with if you get sick in America you're screwed you go to Europe and you're sick you walk into a pharmacy and there's someone there that's willing to help you. They don't ask you for insurance, they don't ask you for a ton of money. I remember when I was in Spain, I twisted my ankle, I could barely walk. I walked into a hospital, they helped me out. No questions asked. That's <laughs> not going to happen here in the United States.
3: In, in in the US, Rush Limbaugh, ironically, conservative talk show host uh, had a problem when he was on vacation and he thought he was having a heart attack. it turns out he wasn't uh, but he had to go into the emergency room and he said what's the big deal afterwards he came out and said what's the big deal I paid the bill it was only the cost of half a Hummer
2: oh my god I just can't, I can't okay. hey.
3: so it was about $35,000 or so his bill and he thought well what's the big deal
2: thirty five thousand dollars
3: for a false alarm to the emergency room
2: you can spend your entire life building your life right you can have a career you can have a nice little nest egg you can have a nice little family all you need to do is get sick once and that entire lifetime of hard work just gets wiped clean it's scary
3: and anyone who tries to fix it they label as a socialist a communist a marxist who's going to destroy american liberty Okay. Here, the real liberty is for the rich to get richer and the powerful to get even more powerful at your expense. So, be forewarned. This is what America's turned into.
4: Yesterday, we talked about the story of a woman in Wisconsin who is facing bankruptcy because of medical expenses, and I said, if you're in a country that has a different system, write to me. What is your view on this? And the responses poured in, Lewis. I have a couple here that I'll share with you. One is from Emma. Emma lives in Finland, and Emma wrote to me and said, David, I saw your segment on hospitalization leading to personal bankruptcy to me. The whole system is quite incomprehensible. I live in Finland, a so-called welfare state. We have progressive taxation, which funds the health care in our country. These health care benefits are available to all based on citizenship. According to our constitution, the state is to provide its citizens social care and health care. In Finland, we have a social insurance institution. It's a government agency. They handle retirement pay, child benefits, unemployment benefits, sickness benefits, health insurance, and student benefits. We also have health care centers which offer free or cheap health care for local people. If I contracted the bad flu, I could reserve a visit to the doctor at a local health care center free of charge. Even without a reservation, it would only be around 15 euro or so. Children's under 18 and war veterans get health care for free. Finland gives their war veterans far better treatment than the United States, a country that is known uh, all over the world as being the military country, it is absolutely shameful, by the way, Emma says that you still have a private insurance market in Finland. People can choose to have uh, extra insurance if they so desire and go to private hospitals, etc, as is the case in most countries actually that have national health care. I also heard from Jonas in Denmark, incredible as a Danish person, hearing your story about the u s healthcare care system. Uh, where if you go to the wrong hospital you can end up with a huge bill. It is just so insane to me. In Denmark we have a free healthcare system, of course, funded by taxes, not truly free, where you can get help if you need it no matter how much money you have. Now I often hear about how Republicans in the US are saying that public health care will hurt jobs in the insurance industry. However, here in Denmark we do still have a private health insurance market as well. Uh if you're interested, Google Healthcare Denmark. Uh, it cost me about 20 U.S. dollars per month for an additional private insurance. Yeah, uh, it's pretty uh, discouraging to read this stuff. I mean, this just this immoral for-profit system in the U.S., Louis. It's just not even computing with people in much of the world. I got emails from Canada, also people talking about their system. It's uh, it's one of the saddest components of American culture in my mind.
5: And
0: uh, I mean, the most shocking thing of all is: let's remember that we were starting to move in the in the direction of a system like this. Yeah. And then we said, "Wait a minute, the Germans are doing this. Uh, This is this must be a really bad thing. We have to avoid this at all costs." Yeah,
4: and that wasn't the only thing that that pulled it down. But absolutely, after World War One, all of a sudden Germans were bad, and they had a system like this, and we were thinking about it. And why would we do the same thing as the evil Germans? Uh, and that did partially derail it. You're absolutely right.
6: Was wollen wir trinken, dieser Kampf war lang. Was wollen wir trinken auf diesen Sieg? Was
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
1: Four industries have banded together. Hospitals, doctors, drug and device makers and the medical insurance companies. Four different industries have banded together to defraud the rest of us of an amount of money for medical care that has no rival in the world among advanced industrial countries. We pay roughly 18 percent of our total income for medical care. The vast majority of other countries pay half or less For a medical care system that's just as good as ours, in many cases, produces better results in terms of longevity, of uh, length of stays in hospital, and so on. It is a scandal at the most basic level, but I'm not talking about that. I want to go into some of the details so you can see why we pay so much more than everybody else for a medical care system that is no better than what many of those others have. And in recent weeks, we've seen uh, examples. One of the scandals to get a considerable amount of coverage is the following. You go into a hospital for some operation, and you sign some papers. You don't pay much attention because you're scared about the operation. But basically, these papers say you will be covered by your Medicare or Medicaid or your private insurance, etc., etc., as long as you use in-network. Physicians that have signed up with your particular service or who accept your particular insurance. And then a funny thing happens. You get a bill later and it isn't for your copay, your little portion, hopefully little of what the cost is. It's for much more money. And why? Because during the operation, perhaps when you were anesthetized, you weren't even awake. They brought in a consultant, another doctor who helped the main doctor and who turns out to be out of your network and therefore able to send you, legally, a bill for enormous amounts of money. This is a way doctors have of helping one another. I'll call you in to my operation as an out-of-network fellow who can then bill an enormous amount, and you call me. Doctors are doing this, and... Major newspapers from the New York Times on down have exposed them in recent weeks for the scam that this is. This is a way for doctors hooked in with insurance companies to get around the limits that insurance companies put on how much they reimburse a doctor for taking care of you. The doctors don't want those limits, and by being called in as an out-of-network consultant to somebody else stopping in for a few minutes to give some advice is a nice and easy way around the limits. This one taking more and more money out of the pocket which helps explain why we pay so much more than other countries for a level of health care that is no better. Another scandal Again, showing the complicated relationships between those four industries that make up the medical-industrial complex, doctors, hospitals, drug and device makers, and the medical insurance companies. Another scandal has been the following. Billions and billions of dollars were revealed, and this is thanks to a provision of Obamacare. These numbers have to be made public. Billions and billions were paid in this year alone by drug companies to, and insurance companies I believe also, to doctors and hospitals for seminars they might lead in some lovely resort in Hawaii, for training that they could get, for conferences that they could attend. Huge amounts of money which were undisguised benefits given to doctors and hospitals when they went along with prescribing extremely expensive drugs. The the drug companies, for example, made an enormous amount of money by this method of, how shall I say it politely, inducing doctors to write prescriptions for medical expensive drugs. Here again is a collusion between these four industries, who often fight with one another as they collude with one another to rip off the public. It is something that we should deal with. If it's clear, as all these reports show, that each of the industries is complexly conspiring with others, explicitly or implicitly, to give each other the huge incomes they get, by taking money from one another, and ultimately from the paying public, because that's, in the end, where it all comes from. We ought to question whether the single payer, having the government oversee the whole operation and run it, which is, by the way, the way most advanced industrial countries do it. Sometimes the government does it all. Sometimes the government oversees and supervises a partly public, partly private system. There are a variety of ways of doing it, but our way is corrupt. Our way is way too expensive, and our way doesn't get better results. You put all that together, and our way is not the best way. It may be the best way to give the one or five percent at the top, the kinds of incomes they get. These industries are among the most profitable in the United States. Doctors are among the highest paid professionals in the United States. Drug companies are among the most profitable industries. It's clear why. We shouldn't be the suckers who pay for this. It is not a question of ethics and it has nothing to do with socialism. It has to do with making an economy that doesn't work for most people into one that does.
7: This is Decode DC. I'm Todd Zwillick. Today we're talking about how laws actually get written and what happens when the normal process of writing those laws gets derailed. And as someone who covered the Affordable Care Act from start to finish in Congress, i got to tell you, I heard a lot of complaints at the time, a lot of challenges, but I never heard anyone talk about those six words, an exchange established by the state, or even the idea that federal subsidies would only flow through state exchanges. But writing laws is messy, and as we explained, Congress at the end of 2009 was really messy. So let's turn to a couple of people who were there actually in the rooms when the law was being drafted.
5: Uh, My name is John McDonough. I was one of a large set of congressional staffers who worked on the writing and passage of the Affordable Care Act.
7: John McDonough is a health policy professor at Harvard, but back in 2009, he was a top aide to Senator Ted Kennedy, who at the time chaired the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And McDonough was deeply involved in negotiating and then writing the text of the ACA, both in his boss's committee and when it was merged before Christmas of that year with a version that came from the Finance Committee. And to McDonough, the mystery about what lawmakers meant by those six words is no mystery
5: at all. Absolutely, every member who voted for the law and every staffer involved in crafting the law fully understood that the subsidies would flow and were intended to flow to all 50 states, regardless of whether they had a state exchange or if they had a federal exchange.
7: As to the intent, as to what lawmakers actually wanted... It was always intended, always believed that what we were
5: writing would guarantee coverage for all Americans.
7: One of the key issues here, John McDonough, of course, uh, is the now notorious phrase, um, exchanges established by the states. And one of the arguments by some of the folks who conceived of this case in broad, like at Cato Institute and other places, is that that's what. Democrats intended at the time that you all intended for there to be this cudgel, this incentive, this threat, that if your state doesn't establish an exchange, you will get no subsidy. You will get nothing. Can you
5: speak to that supposition, whether if you all intended to do that? They came up with this interpretation by opportunistically cherry picking six words out of a nine hundred and fifty page statute. Uh, You can do that in all manner of life, but it's uh, really without any intellectual merit and it is completely in ignorance of statutory interpretation and the way that the Supreme Court has talked repeatedly that you never interpret a law just looking at random words here and there. You interpret a law based upon the context and the whole meaning of the whole statute. And when you do that, there is no argument left. But then there's this. Someone else who is on the inside
7: of negotiations is longtime Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch. Hatch was a member of both the Senate committees that wrote the Affordable Care Act, and today he's the chairman of the Finance Committee. Now, back in 2010, Hatch co-authored an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal attacking Obamacare. No surprise there. But part of what Hatch wrote has become a big deal today. In that op-ed, Hatch complains that Obamacare commands states to set up exchanges, but then he says, and I'm quoting here, this is not a condition for receiving federal funds, which would still leave some kind of choice to the states, end quote. Hatch writes, the law forces states to come up with exchanges, and now I'm quoting again, or says the Secretary of Health and Human Services will step in and do it for them. Wow, that seems to clear up the debate. Well, I recently caught up with Senator Hatch and asked if he ever really thought that Obamacare's authors only wanted subsidies to go to the states that set up their own exchanges. Was there ever a question in your mind as to the intent of the legislation? Oh, yeah,
8: because the Democrats were arguing that the only way to get the states to sign up is to put the pressure on them by making making them have to do a state exchange. And so it's kind of disingenuous for them to come in now and say, "Oh, they didn't mean that."
7: So your your recollection of the debate in the negotiation at the time was that that was intentional,
8: well, that that sure. was a
7: that was a cudgel.
8: Oh, sure, And I'm not the only one who knows that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their attitude was, "You'll never get all the states to sign up if you don't uh, force them to." Yeah, I don't think there was any doubt in <laughs> the Democrats' minds they wanted to do that because they were afraid that the you know, the states would not form their own exchanges. And uh, now they're trying to say they didn't say that, but they did. Now, wait, this is pretty confusing.
7: Remember, Cannon says that no one, including him, realized until later that the law can find subsidies to state exchanges. Now, Hatch is saying, oh, yeah, we knew it all along, except that's not what Hatch wrote back in 2010.
5: And John McDonough says he's not buying any of it. Why did he not make an issue of that? Uh, before the law was passed, why is there not a single instant in the entire Senate floor debate, including from Senator Hatch, who talked at great length, repeatedly again and again on the floor during the debate, why did he fail to ever mention that in any of his voluminous public statements during that period of time?
7: So what does a person who might be new to this have to believe? In order to believe that you all actually wanted some kind of sleeper, unannounced punishment,
5: what do you have to believe to buy that narrative? They would have to believe that the uh, senators and staffers who put this together, uh, yours truly included, were literally out of our minds. (laughs) Some people do believe that. Stand accused.
7: So then, of course, the question is, what happened? If those six words weren't part of some sneak attack, if they weren't a mistake, did they actually serve a purpose? John McDonough says they absolutely did. They were in the bill with a very specific purpose. And he says at the time, some policy wonks were pushing the idea that anyone should be able to set up an exchange under Obamacare and that those exchanges should have all the power to enroll people and qualify them for subsidies. And that worried him and a lot of other
5: people too. We said, we were concerned, very much so, that there would in fact be a thousand flowers blooming of different kinds of exchanges. And so the purpose of including established by the state was to make absolutely clear that the only entities that could get their fingers on distributing and making people qualified for tax credits would be governmental entities in the public sector and established by the state in the context of the law clearly means a state established or a federally facilitated marketplace without any ambiguity at all.
7: Still in retrospect, maybe at this point, do you, is there part of you that kind of wishes that somebody had just said established by the state or the federal government and just said that
5: I am not an attorney. But when the lawyers tell us basically, hey, it's not an issue because it's clearly captured up in the statutory construction, you take their word for it because they know what they're talking about. And 999 out of 1,000 days, that's good enough. It's just turns out not to be good enough in terms of this crazy, hyper-politicized environment that we live in, in the context and era of Obamacare.
7: So McDonough says, no mistakes, the ACA is drafted just as it should have been. And frankly, he kind of has to say that. The text in question is now literally a federal case. But hyper-politicized is certainly true, and with just six words in the balance affecting so many millions of people and their health care, you have to ask, couldn't this whole thing have been avoided? Well, I gotta tell you, in bill writing, like any other kind of writing, typos, glitches, mistakes, they happen all the time. And if this were almost any other bill, Congress would pass a one-sentence amendment. It's called a technical correction. They're super boring. You never see them coming or going. They're sort of done by consensus. You pass a law that says, move this comma over there or move this period over there so that it's right, and that's a normal way that stuff gets fixed around Capitol Hill. In this case, Obamacare was so controversial, so politicized, there was no copy editing, no moving of commas or making the slightly vague maybe a little more specific. But then again, almost nothing about this bill, or its life after it was written, seems normal.
0: Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think. Mother
3: Jones did a fantastic article on the plaintiffs in the case on Obamacare that the Supreme Court is going to hear in March. And the reporter here is Stephanie Mensimer, and She went and found the plaintiffs. So she said, okay, you guys are suing. You really want to get rid of Obamacare. It's on this technicality. Um, Why do you care so much? Well, of course, the reality is they don't know a thing about it. They got put up to it. Now, So first she explains who put them up to it. She says the King case, that's what it's called, started out as a legal theory hatched by a group of conservative lawyers in 2010 at a conference sponsored by the American Enterprise Institute. Of course. That's a right-leaning think tank. It's uh, funded greatly by the Koch brothers. The attendees were urged to devise litigation strategy to bring down the Affordable Care Act, which months earlier had been signed into law. Now let's note the irony here. So these guys who are always whining and complaining about tort reform, ah, there's too much lawsuits. The minute Obamacare comes in to effect, they're like, let's do a lawsuit, litigation. No, no, When they say tort reform, they mean don't sue the corporations. We want to keep all the money. Even if we did you wrong, even if we harmed you or your family, I don't want you to sue me. Me? Oh, I get to sue anybody I like. Yeah, I can't wait to sue Obama to defeat this. Uh, wait, wait, I also thought you guys hated activist judges. You wanted the will of the people to speak, and Congress passed this, and it was very clear, right? Oh, no, you like activist judges when it's your turn. Interesting. Okay. Now, let me tell you uh, who's in this group. The Libertarian Competitive Enterprise Institute, Uh, now that's a similar organization, obviously. It's a think tank funded by big pharmaceutical firms, oil and gas outfits, the Koch brothers, Google, tobacco companies, and conservative foundations. And they answered the call. So the real people behind the lawsuit are the incredibly wealthy and the corporate interests that care about this uh, Affordable Care Act. Okay. But they need, they can't go in there and be like, hey, you know what, I don't want to pay my uh, employees more. I don't like to give them health insurance. I don't want people to, uh, you know, get new insurance or have it be cheaper. I'm a pharmaceutical company. I want to make more money. This won't let me make more money. This helps the American people. They can't say that, right? So they got to find four people to come in there. And so now they could find more people if they wanted, but apparently they couldn't. They couldn't, so they found these four schleps. And wait till you get a load of their stories. So, again, Metzger went to go talk to them. One of them was David King. The guy makes, according to the papers uh, filed in the lawsuit, about $39,000. It's not like he's rich. He's not among the elite, right? So why did he do it? Why did he join this lawsuit? And it turns out, by the way, that he probably wouldn't have had to pay a penalty uh, under Obamacare. He might not be relevant at all in this lawsuit. He might not even have standing. Uh, so when she asked him about it, he said... According to the story here, when I asked him about the lawsuit, he brought up Benghazi. What does Benghazi have to do with the Affordable Care Act? No, they just found a guy who actually would benefit from the law, except he doesn't realize it, I'll get to that in a second, and he hates Obama. So why are you against Obamacare? Benghazi. Unbelievable. She goes on to explain. David King said he doesn't care if millions of Americans lose their health coverage, Because they're probably not paying for it anyway. Then she goes on to explain the facts. But according to a new analysis by the Urban Institute, of the 8 million people most at risk of losing their health insurance if King prevails, 80% are employed. They're not bums, they're employed. Moreover, 70% are high school graduates or have some college education. More than 60% are white and live in the South. And 82% of them are not poor but low and middle income. More than a million of the Americans whose health coverage in this lawsuit puts at risk are over 55. In short, many of them are David King. So David King, of course, is white. He's from the South. Uh, he's above the age of 55. He's in that exact income bracket. Well played. Okay. And it's uh, increasing. It's also very likely that if he investigated the Affordable Care Act, he would save hundreds of dollars a month. I mean, my God, man, you're not that rich. Go ahead and save the money. He says he won't even look into it because it's Obamacare, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with Obama. Ugh. Okay, then we go to Rose Luck. Now, Rose has not had a lot of luck because she had unpaid medical bills of $5,000. $5,000. So obviously she had some significant issues. Now they got paid along the way at some point, unclear how that got paid. But anyway, obviously this was a huge issue in her life, and Obamacare would help with that. She would get insured, she would get lower insurance, low rate for the insurance. Well, it turns out she's not a big fan of Obama either. On her Facebook page, she has called him the Antichrist," voiced her belief that Obama came to power because he got his Muslim people to vote for him. And noted her refusal to acknowledge his legitimacy as president. "Quote: Oh hell no, I wouldn't admit he was our president," she wrote in one Facebook comment. So, uh, why are you against the Affordable Care Act? Because I hate Obama. I mean, we used to joke about the line because Benghazi. <laughs> it turns out that there, it's literal. Okay, so now we go to Brenda Levy. Now she's not. Uh, in the category of she's conservative but not as hard right as the others Right? doesn't hate Obama as much in fact she used to be a member of the Sierra Club uh, so it's a fascinating character she's 64 years old so they ask her how'd you get involved in this case quote I don't know how I got on this case I haven't done a single thing legally I'm going to have to ask them how they found me she has bills that are uh, of $1,500 for her health insurance under Obamacare that might come down to one hundred and forty-eight dollars. Oh my God! What have you done? What have you done? Look into the bill. She joked around about how she's got a lot of medical problems. Actually, she said, uh, "I've had some holes drilled in my head." Then they say to her, "Hey, are you part of this process at all? I mean, you haven't talked to the lawyers. You don't know how you got on the case." She says, "Oh yeah, yeah, but I'm going to go hear the proceedings in front of the Supreme Court since I'm, the, I'm one of the plaintiffs." And she adds, quote, it's an adventure, like going to Paris. Oh. Then they ask her, hey, how about all the people who are going to be thrown off of their health insurance if you win, if you win the case? She says, I don't want things to be more difficult for people. I don't like the idea of throwing people off their health insurance. Well, Brenda, I got bad news for you. About 8 million people would be thrown off their health insurance if you win. I know you want to go to Paris, Those 8 million people aren't going to Paris. And then she has a fundamental misunderstanding of how things work. She lives in Virginia. She says, I think Virginia Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe wants to expand Medicaid. She remarked, she didn't know that Medicaid expansion was part of Obamacare or that the same forces backing her lawsuit have opposed this expansion in her state. She's in favor of Medicaid. She's 64. In a couple of months, she's going to start getting Medicare, which she's a big fan of. Medicare and Medicaid are government health insurance. You think the guys who put her up to this don't know that? They know that. So they found these poor schmucks and they're like, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Oh, your health insurance would go sky high. <laughs> you would pay less, idiot. Come on, come on, join the lawsuit. Right, oh yeah, we're trying to help people get more insurance. Oh, ha, ha ha Come on, Brenda, come along, come along, here you go. Oh, it's grotesque, man. Oh yeah, is it yep yeah. isn't Medicare so much better? Oh we hate the get the government hands off of our health insurance. Levy contended that Obamacare had caused many Americans to lose their insurance and for premiums to rise. Of course that is categorically false. In fact, the percentage of uninsured Americans has fallen from 18% to 13.4% since the law took effect just last year. So the reality is, they're getting her to do the exact opposite of what she wants. She just doesn't know it. These are the pawns that the elite use on their chessboard to go get the things that they want. They buy our politicians off with campaign donations. They buy off their staffers with lobbyist positions. And then they go find these poor schmucks who actually would be far better off under Obamacare, but hate Obama so much that they're willing to damage themselves, their financial well-being, and the well-being both health-wise and wealth-wise of their family to make sure that they sue Obama to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which in reality would help them. Welcome to America
9: I thought I'd seen it until she showed me the American way oh, the American
6: way Will I walk out to a brand new day The American way
1: With some sadness the governor of Vermont this last week stopped a four-year process in the state of Vermont that had been intended and aimed at giving Vermont a single-payer health insurance program quite like the one that exists in Canada and far more comprehensive than anything that exists in the other 49 states of the United States Vermont was a leader and governor Shumlin Stop that this last week. That's sad. Sad for the people of Vermont. Sad for the rest of the United States, which might have had, sooner than otherwise, a working model of a single-payer system in one of the 50 states that would have certainly inspired many folks in other states to do the same. And I wanted to find out and report to you why this happened. Why did the governor stop it. Did he stop it because somehow providing universal health care isn't a good idea anymore? On the contrary, he made it crystal clear he believes in it as much or more than ever before. Well, then what was the reason if it wasn't the revelation, if it wasn't the Republican and right wing critics of the very idea having persuaded him, nothing of the sort? The answer was Money. And so I wanted to talk again about yet another dimension of capitalism's dysfunction. Here's where the items that Mr. or Governor Shumlin pointed to to explain his decision. First, there are lingering effects of the recession, he said. And he pointed specifically to projections that he had gotten from his advisors that there would be a downdraft of revenue to the government of Vermont over the next year in the neighborhood of 75 million dollars. In other words, capitalism's failure to have recovered, much to the chagrin of those who think we are in one, the failure of our economy to recover, here we are six, seven years since this crisis hit, is one of the reasons why Vermont cannot give its people the single-payer health insurance system it had intended. What else affected him? The new medical care bill, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. This involves a loss, it turns out, to the state of Vermont of uh, $150 million less in federal help And an additional 150 million less in Medicaid and medic, well, particularly Medicaid assistance. In other words, the so-called medical reforms that have been decimated as they go through Congress, plus a dysfunctional capitalist economy in the United States, those are the reasons, the hard economic reasons why Vermont had to postpone, according to the governor the single-payer health initiative they had undertaken. And why? Because we can't afford it, said Governor Shumlin. Wow. The whole plan was not to raise more money. The plan was to have an in-place, single-payer, comprehensive health insurance program for the people of Vermont. Everybody would pay for it but the corporations and the rich would be asked to pay more on the same principle that governs the federal income tax. The more you have, the more you are called upon to do something that's good for the whole community, namely guarantee everybody health insurance so they can get taken care of for the diseases that are not their fault 90% of the time and that should be covered even if they are as a matter of human community solidarity. The government of Vermont was afraid to tax corporations and the rich the share they ought to pay and so backed off. That's an economics of the denial of what most people in Vermont want and have voted for and have answered polling questions about. There's no question what's going on, but it's a politics and an economics of denying what's needed.
10: This is astonishing from the District Sentinel. This is the District Sentinel. You know, we live in DC, so you don't have to, or we watch DC, so you don't have to. Uh, Their slogan, it's a news co op. Sam Knight wrote this. And the headline is Leak Show's Sweeping Trade Deal Could Be Used to Privatize Healthcare. And we're not just talking about in the United States, we're talking about all around the world. This was published yesterday in an international nonprofit called the Associated Whistleblower Ex- uh, Press. Which, uh, released a leaked paper from the trade negotiations between the United States and EU member states. Now, this is not the TPP, the Shafta. This is, a, a whole nother deal that's being worked out with the, uh, European states. And the, the, uh, I mean, this is, this is pretty astonishing. The paper, Bemoans the lack of market mechanisms. Sam Knight writes in determining how health services are allocated. You listening carefully? There, you know this this paper that was produced by this trade group that has you know got another trade deal for us. Hey, another wonderful trade deal. Uh, they're saying uh, one of the big problems is that uh, healthcare isn't subject to market forces. Why? Because individual countries are providing free healthcare to their to their citizens and there's no profit motive in free healthcare so it's not subject to market forces instead it's cheap and it works anyhow what they say is uh, the health sector has played only a very minor role and they misspelled minor in international trade because the healthcare services is funded they you know they apparently whoever wrote this paper never took second grade grammar because the healthcare services is funded and provided by state or welfare organizations and is virtually no interest for foreign competitors due to the lack of market oriented scope of activity or for activity. Other than the nature of the healthcare sectors, there are also regulatory and structural access barriers suppressing the potential volume of trade and health services. What they're calling for is investor state dispute settlement mechanisms that could allow companies to claim that a policy change impacted adversely its profitability so that the government can be sued? Got this? This is, it is so important that we understand the end game here. The end game of the, the, the right-wing billionaires who are funding politics in the United States. The end game of the right-wing billionaires and transnational corporations who are imposing austerity on European countries, secondary and tertiary European countries. The, the end game of the funders of the Paul Ryans and John Boehner's and Mitch McConnell's of the world. Certainly Jeb Bush and friends. I'm increasingly thinking the Republican ticket is going to be Jeb Bush and uh, Scott Walker for VP. We'll see. But in any case, all of these guys are funded by basically the same right-wing billionaires, and their end game is to squeeze a profit out of anything that moves, right? Any, any, anything that, that is being done by government right now that can be flipped into a profit-earning potential should be that's their that's their mantra because then you have market forces and the market is magic you know now this is a this is a religious belief this is a fantasy in that you know your your local water company has been supplying water to you for years and years and years it's owned by your city in most of america and the idea that if you bring somebody in who's got a profit motive attached to this thing they can make a buck off it and therefore you'll get better water Eh, no, it typically doesn't work out that way. Typically, when you, when you privatize public, natural monopolies, water, septic, roads, what you do is you raise the cost of them to everybody and you increase the profits to a small group of investors. Period. And that's what these guys are all about.
6: AJ, this is Matt from California, and I'm calling about the terms left, liberal, progressive. What I've found is that the terms liberal and left seem to imply to me uh, solutions to problems. And when you start with a solution to a problem, it often puts people on their guard and makes them resistant to actually talking about the problem and how to change the problem. For instance, uh you know, liberal might imply spreading resources around, it, you know, taking from some and giving to another. Left might imply social systems like socialism or communism. And both of these imply solutions to problems. Um, on the other hand, what i found is that when you um start uh, a conversation with stakeholders about the problem itself uh, without implying a solution. It makes it um, easier to actually find common ground about the problem and um, and get the group to collectively come up with solutions that work for everybody. And in this way, um, I think it's easier to make progress and I think that um, that's probably the reason why I have chosen um, the word progressive um, to, to better describe the way uh, you know, I approach things and, and feel about things and why of the three, that's, that's the one that I've, I've landed on. So that's my thoughts on it. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work
8: and have a great day. Bye. Hi Jay, this is Adrian Andre from Albuquerque, New Mexico and I wanted to reply to the thought of what is the definition of left and what does it mean for me and I would just like to answer in regards to what the man had suggested that when I first heard about this podcast I was very apprehensive in actually giving it a try because I am a self-proclaimed liberal And I have been a self-proclaimed liberal since I was 15, and i fluctuated between liberalism and libertarianism and being a conspiracy theorist, and now just settling with a more saner approach, which is liberalism. And I just wanted to say that I'm I'm very well aware that being a liberal carries a bunch of connotations and a bunch of nuances that people like to self-righteously appraise. And I think this podcast does what it can and and does a great job of being able to comb through and weed out the stigmas and the perceptions of liberalism in a very rational and introspective way where you would try to question what it is to have the identity of being deemed a liberal. And I think that's incredibly valuable and I think it's necessary. And I understand that there is, that we live in America and it's, uh you know very dichotomized polarized political system but it's also worth noting that within this democratic society that we live in it's very difficult to not give credence to this dichotomy despite whatever political ideology we would like to adhere to so those are my thoughts and i've been a big fan of yours and i've been waiting for the opportunity to be able to call and give you some input but I would just like to say that I do think that that's a very important discussion and it's not something that should be taken lightly. I think it could be a very fashionable, pretentious, and self-righteous thing to consider yourself a liberal or a progressive or what have you. All right, so uh, thanks, Jay, and I'm a big fan, and I hope to uh, hear more of your podcast, and I hope you win. All right, bye.
9: Hey, Chuck in Salt Lake City here. Man, uh, what great bait. You're called for us to call in and talk about uh, our feelings on liberalism and progressivism uh, is irresistible, I'm sure, to more than me. I, uh, you know, started out my life in a, here in cons- very conservative Utah, uh, surrounded by half of my family, which was Mormon, and the other half of my family, which was... Uh, hardcore redneck racists, and I still love them both, <laughs> but I don't uh, have much in common with any of them anymore. I'm one of these people that can't even use Facebook because it makes me hate my family. That being said, uh, as far as the actual uh, lingo, you know, the, the the actual lingo, I personally think that those are have been, for me anyway. Those were labels. I never, uh, at any point decided I'm a liberal or I'm a progressive. My first encounter with the word liberal was listening to my boss, one, you know, one of my bosses, uh, when I was about 18 years old, uh, listening to the Rush Limbaugh show and throwing around liberal epithets, you know, liberalism as an epithet. And, you know, I knew that I was a liberal by his definition, uh, you know, by, by the rest of his rants. But it wasn't anything that I bought, I cared to, uh, embrace. And even to this day, you know, I'm 44 years old and, uh, I've been on the left end of the spectrum since probably, oh, about the age of 14 when I kind of started drifting towards atheism. And I would probably say that I, uh, you know, would have voted for Republicans, even at that time, uh, just because that's kind of how I was raised. Uh, I had uh, one grandfather who was a who was a a Democrat, uh, but you know he was from the labor side. And you know, I don't know if you remember, but uh, there was a time in the show when we had a discussion about about that, and I actually called in and tried to explain that you know I think a lot of liberals are are missing out uh, by excluding a lot of people on the left that come from the labor side of the spectrum you know i guess what i would call uh carnivorous uh tailgating left-wingers that i'm very familiar with uh on the you know from the labor side of the spectrum uh, people who work in uh, blue collar jobs and love their barbecues and love to uh, go uh, hunting and camping and fishing and all of the uh, what many liberals I'm sure would declare, you know, hardcore redneck uh, pastimes, but they're actually on the left uh, and they come from it from the labor side and they kind of have to be pulled into some of the more Quote unquote progressive ideals, uh, you know, gay rights, the whole idea of privilege. Boy, uh, you can't believe some of the conversations I've had with fam, uh, friends and family trying to explain, uh, white privilege to them. And, you know, that's, uh, I think that, uh, for me is the most interesting part of this whole conversation is the fact that many of us don't care uh, about the label liberal or progressive uh, what we care about is the planks in those ideals and finding our way onto which planks we agree with and as far as the media goes I think it's kind of a trap too um, I, I would be interested to hear arguments from other listeners because I actually feel like the whole progressive <laughs> Label, uh, we've kind of grabbed onto because Russ Limbaugh and others did such a good job besmirching the word liberal. That's kind of the way I've seen it, all I'll go down. Maybe, uh, maybe it's just because of my, the little corner of the world that I'm in, but I, I, I feel like, uh, Republicans and conservatives are very good at this word game. And I think liberals need to be, uh, or people on the left need to be really careful about being dragged into it. Anyway, uh, food for thought. Hopefully some of the things I said make the cut. Thanks, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening everyone, thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I think that worked out exactly right. Uh, One self-labeled progressive, one self-labeled liberal and one guy who doesn't think it matters and doesn't care. That pretty much sums up this argument perfectly. And I, I the last thing I'll say on it is just to agree with with the the last point that Chuck the last caller made, recognizing that I agree with him more or less because this was the first thing I was told, and uh, I think people kind of latch on to whatever the first thing they're told is, that's what's right, and and then you hear a second thing, and that's not right. So the first thing I was told is that the word liberal has been around a lot longer than progressive, and the conservatives went on a uh, concerted effort for decades to demonize that word, and so now... A huge majority of people in in America think that the word liberal means something bad, something they wouldn't want anything to do with, even though they agree with policies that are associated with liberals. So the conservatives went on this campaign, Rush Limbaugh, as as Chuck brought up and, and so on, and succeeded in demonizing that word to the point that some people who would previously have been labeled liberals decided to change the word with which they labeled themselves. And so they came up with progressive. And so, again, the way it was explained to me was, well, those people who sort of bought into that and decided to change the the label that they had were sort of the more wishy-washy, of the group, not the you know, not the hardcore, the fire breathing, the you know, the far left uh, stalwarts. It was sort of the like, no, like I'm on the left and I want to help people, but uh, you know, I don't mind seeding this ground because you know the, the conservatives won this, like they demonized that word, and 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 then some of them even like, really internalized it, and they're like, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't call myself a liberal, and they and they mean it. They're like, no, 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 I'm definitely a progressive, I'm not a liberal, whatever that is, because those conservatives made it sound like liberals are crazy. And so for me, I thought, well, if that's how it broke down, then I'm clearly a liberal, because I would have, you know, had, had I been around as that linguistic uh, challenge was being made, I would have been the, in the group saying, fuck you. <laughs> you. You don't get to take my word. You don't get to redefine it for me. I'm going to be a liberal because I've always been a liberal. And, you know, you trying to demonize that word isn't going to actually change what it means. And I'm going to keep, uh, you know, fighting for it. And so I thought, well, that's the group I'd want to hang out with. So I thought, well, all right, I guess I must be a liberal. And then in the last couple of years or so, I don't remember, I had, yeah, I don't know if I said the word or mentioned it or something. And uh and, and a listener either wrote in or called in saying like whoa jay, like careful jay don't don't throw in with those liberals you know the liberals are the you know they're they're the sellouts they're the, the you know the the corporatists who are too in bed with the democrats and you know they'll they'll sell you right down the river and and they're you know they that's the wishy-washy group if you want to be with the real you know the the real hardcore leftists you know the 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 fire-breathing stalwarts you need to you know hang out with the progressives I was just like, man, what bizarro world funhouse mirror are we living in? So, I mean, it's 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 the culmination of all of the conversations I've had on this topic, uh, from from the first to the last, that made me think, good God, we just need to stop caring. And, and so I f- fall solidly in Chuck's camp in in this conversation of, uh, yeah, I don't really care about labels. <laughs> if you if you have a really strong opinion about what label should be used, then I, I think you're sort of uh wasting your time and, and could put your efforts elsewhere because the water is so muddied at this point that now it actually is a lost cause because because enough people allowed the word liberal to be sullied, that you know, now people are actually at cross purposes and to try to figure out where a person stands based on their label doesn't even work. It doesn't make sense because so many people have different perspectives on what all the words mean that, uh, all right, screw it. Just how do you feel about single-payer healthcare? Let's just go with that and we'll talk about that. And then on the next issue, I'll ask you about that issue. And I'm not going to assume I know your position on anything based on what you call yourself. If you have more thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. That number again, 202 999 3991. That's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com best of left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode episode all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
10: and it's a and shame
8: how we get so trained